This is an audio version of Feature Visualization by Chris Ola et al. from 2017. Subtitle, How Neural Networks Build Up Their Understanding of Images. It's included as one of the core readings in the AGI Safety Fundamentals course. Audio note, this is a very image-intensive paper. There are a lot of figures that show different kinds of patterns. I'll attempt to provide brief verbal explanations of what's going on in those images, but you can check them out in the original post if you'd like to see all the detail. The paper also contains footnotes which have been omitted from this recording for brevity. Once again, you can check them out in the original source. The paper begins with a figure, captioned, Feature visualization allows us to see how Google Net, trained on the ImageNet dataset, builds up its understanding of images over many layers. Visualizations of all channels are available in the appendix. So here we see examples of edges, textures, patterns, parts, and objects. And those are built up in layers from top to bottom. So edges is a series of patterns that appear black and white or close to it, very monochromatic. They look kind of like close-up images of fingerprints. Then there's the textures layer. All the textures look kind of different. One looks a bit like a honeycomb. One looks like a close-up of pebbles. One looks like a close-up of tree bark. One looks like a close-up of an atomic lattice, but kind of blurry. One looks like a close-up of a piece of rope. Then you've got a patterns layer. One looks like a close-up of a piece of fabric. One looks like lots of tiny balls or jelly beans. One looks like microorganisms floating around in a petri dish, etc. Then you have parts. These images are a little bit more abstract. We see the centres of flowers, what look like parts of insects, like their legs and antennae, what look like potentially parts of a user interface on a computer, maybe parts of the fabric of a hot air balloon, and maybe eyes or parts of a face. But these are the kind of kaleidoscopic, psychedelic pseudo-tessellations that you see in deep dreaming style images. And the final layer is objects. And here we see recognisable objects like eyes, archways in buildings, spiders, the faces of dogs, and plates of food. Once again, they're those psychedelic pseudo-tessellations. Here's the main text. There is a growing sense that neural networks need to be interpretable to humans. The field of neural network interpretability is formed in response to these concerns. As it matures, two major threads of research have begun to coalesce, feature visualisation and attribution. Feature visualization answers questions about what a network or parts of a network are looking for by generating examples. And here we have two more images like the above, showing these abstract visualizations that are reminiscent of real-world objects, or reminiscent of aspects of real-world objects. And attribution studies what part of an example is responsible for the network activating a particular way. And here we have a picture of a dog looking at a cat. It's very cute. And then we have the parts of the image that have the dog and the cat in them lit up in a kind of a heat map while the irrelevant parts of the image are dark. This article focuses on feature visualization. While feature visualization is a powerful tool, actually getting it to work involves a number of details. In this article, we examine the major issues and explore common approaches to solving them. We find that remarkably simple methods can produce high-quality visualizations. Along the way, we introduce a few tricks for exploring variation in what neurons react to, how they interact, and how they improve the optimization process. Section heading. Feature visualization by optimization. Neural networks are, generally speaking, differentiable with respect to their inputs. If we want to find out what kind of input would cause a certain behavior, whether that's an internal neuron firing or the final output behavior, we can use derivatives to iteratively tweak the input towards that goal. So here's a figure captioned, starting from random noise, we optimize an image to activate a particular neuron. So at step zero, it looks like white noise. Then we have snapshots of step four and step 48, where we see a pattern emerging. And by step 2048, we have this clear lattice-like pattern. 
it looks like several layers of fly-screen mesh that have been overlapped, with rainbow colours in between the darker lines. While conceptually simple, there are subtle changes in getting the optimization to work. We will explore them, as well as common approaches to tackle them in the section The Enemy of Feature Visualization. Audio note, you can navigate this recording using the chapter headings function if the player you're using supports this. Heading. Optimization objectives. What do we want examples of? This is the core question in working with examples, regardless of whether we're searching through a dataset to find the examples or optimizing images to create them from scratch. We have a wide variety of options in what we search for. Here's an image captioned, different optimization objectives show what different parts of a network are looking for. So here we have five different examples. One is visualizing what a neuron is looking for, one what a channel is looking for, one what a layer is looking for, one what class logits are looking for, and one what class probability is looking for. For neuron, it's a fairly abstract image. It could be a 3D visualization of an atom. It has this kind of concentric circles, but rotated in three-dimensional space. It's got a clear pattern to it, but it's not really identifiable as a particular object. For channel, we have that lattice we described before, which looks a bit like multiple layers of fly screen, or a close-up of fabric. For layer, which is also labeled deep dream, we have these kind of dog faces in spheres, which seem to be floating around to different parts of the image, with these psychedelic peacock tail-like visualizations in the background. Class logits, we have these kind of overlapping faces that look like they come from a wolf, potentially, or an animal like that, and the faces are all smudged into each other. And then class probability is much more abstract again. It has features suggestive of some kind of bird or a human figure wearing a big dress, but it's a stretch to say those are strong associations. The text goes on. If we want to understand individual features, we can search for examples where they have high values, either for a neuron at an individual position or for an entire channel. We use the channel objective to create most of the images in this article. If we want to understand a layer as a whole, we can use the deep dream objective, searching for images the layer finds interesting in quotes. And if we want to create examples of output classes from a classifier, we have two options. Optimizing class logits before the softmax, or optimizing class probabilities after the softmax. One can see the logits as the evidence for each class, and the probabilities as the likelihood of each class, given the evidence. Unfortunately, the easiest way to increase the probability softmax gives to a class is often to make the alternatives unlikely, rather than to make the class of interest likely. From our experience, optimizing pre-softmax logits produces images of better visual quality. The objectives we've mentioned only scratch the surface of possible objectives. There are a lot more that one could try. Of particular note are the objectives used in style transfer, which can teach us about what kinds of style and content a network understands, and objectives used in optimization-based model inversion, which help us understand what information a model keeps and what it throws away. We are only at the beginning of understanding which objectives are interesting, and there is a lot of room for more work in this area. Heading. Why visualize by optimization? Optimization can give us an input example that causes the desired behavior. But why bother with that? Couldn't we just look through the dataset for examples that cause the desired behavior? It turns out that the optimization approach can be a powerful way to understand what a model is really looking for, because it separates the things causing behavior from things that merely correlate with the causes. For example, consider the following neurons visualized with dataset examples and optimization. So here we have a set of pairs of images. The first row of them are labeled dataset examples that show us what neurons respond to in practice. The second row is labeled optimization isolates the causes of behavior from mere correlations. A neuron may not be detecting what you initially thought. So in the first example, we have images of baseballs 
We also have images of the rims of car tyres, the inside of what looks like a lampshade, the front cover of a lamp, and the optimization approach. We see a visualisation of what the neuron's looking for, and it's some kind of circular striped pattern. It's labelled baseball or stripes. In the second example, we have lots of different animal faces, bear, dog, cat, fox. And the visualised neuron is a big image of a snout with a couple of eyes above it in this kind of psychedelic tessellation. It's labelled animal faces or snouts. The next image has lots of examples of clouds, some kind of smoke trail from a rocket potentially, some cotton, maybe some mashed potato, close-up of a piece of string that's fraying at the ends, and several things like that. The neuron visualisation has what just looks like a cloud of smoke, these kind of billowing patterns, and it's labelled clouds or fluffiness. And the last of these examples, we have lots of structures pictured. The top of the White House, various churches, minarets, bridges construction cranes, things like that, with sky visible at the top. And the neuron is visualising some kind of pointed or conical structure with square structures underneath it, and then a big blue expanse. It's labelled buildings or sky. The text goes on. Optimization also has the advantage of flexibility. For example, if we want to study how neurons jointly represent information, we can easily ask how a particular example would need to be different for an additional neuron to activate. This flexibility can also be helpful in visualising how features evolve as the network trains. If we were limited to understanding the model on the fixed examples in our dataset, topics like these ones would be much harder to explore. On the other hand, there are also significant challenges to visualising features with optimization. In the following sections, we'll examine techniques to get diverse visualisations, understand how neurons interact, and avoid high-frequency artefacts. Section heading, diversity. Do our examples show us the full picture? When we create examples by optimization, this is something we need to be very careful of. It's entirely possible for genuine examples to still mislead us by only showing us one facet, in quotes, of what a feature represents. Dataset examples have a big advantage here. By looking through our dataset, we can find diverse examples. It doesn't just give us ones activating a neuron intensely. We can look across a whole spectrum of activations to see what activates the neuron to different extents. So the first one, we have an image labelled positive optimised, and it's a kind of deep dreaming structure showing conical structures with blue expanses above them. The maximum activation examples from the data set are these images of the roofs of buildings with sky visible above them that we saw before, and slightly positive activation examples are similar to the maximum examples except that the entire roof isn't visible, or there isn't much sky visible. In the second example, we have negative optimised, and we just have an example of lots of little whirlpools the minimum activation examples from the data set, we have some speaker cones, skateboard wheels, lollipops, the eye of a dog, the wheel of a car, some things like that. And the slightly negative activation examples, blurry close-ups of animal faces, the rotary dial keypad of an old telephone, some company logos, cans of beer, things like that. The text goes on. In contrast, optimization generally gives us just one extremely positive example. And if we're creative, a very negative example as well. Is there some way that optimization could also give us this diversity? Heading, achieving diversity with optimization. A given feature of a network may respond to a wide range of inputs. On the class level, for example, a classifier that has been trained to recognize dogs should recognize both close-ups of their faces as well as wider profile images, even though those have quite different visual appearances. Early work by Wei et al. attempts to demonstrate this intra-class diversity by recording activations over the entire training set, clustering them and optimising for the cluster centroids, revealing the different facets of a class that were learned. A different approach by Nguyen, Yusinski and collaborators 
was to search through the dataset for diverse examples and use those as a starting point for the optimization process. The idea is that this initiates optimization in different facets of the feature so that the resulting example from optimization will demonstrate that facet. In more recent work, they combine visualizing classes with a generative model, which they can sample for diverse examples. Their first approach had limited success, and while the generative model approach works very well, we'll discuss it more in the section on regularization under learned priors, it can be a bit tricky. We find that there's a very simple way to achieve diversity, adding a diversity term in quotes to one's objective that pushes multiple examples to be different from each other. The diversity term can take a variety of forms, and we don't have much understanding of their benefits yet. One possibility is to penalise the cosine similarity of different examples. Another is to use ideas from style transfer to force the feature to be displayed in different styles. In lower-level neurons, a diversity term can reveal the different facets a feature represents. So here's a figure. It has dataset examples that include long-necked water birds, corkscrew, the links of a chain, and a few other squiggly patterns that are hard to discern. The simple optimization shows, again, a pseudo-tessellating pattern of different squiggles, and the optimization with diversity reveals four different curvy facets, and these images all have different squiggles, with different gradients and contours of colour between them. The text goes on. Diverse feature visualizations allow us to more closely pinpoint what activates a neuron, to the degree that we can make, and by looking at dataset examples, check predictions about what inputs will activate the neuron. For example, let's imagine this simple optimization result. Here's an image titled Simple Optimization. Again, it's one of those pseudo-tessellating images. And on a first glance, it's overall suggestive of some kind of animal head with an eye visible. The text reads, Looking at it in isolation, one might infer that this neuron activates on the top of dogs' heads, as the optimization shows both eyes and only downward curved edges. Looking at the optimization with diversity, however, we see optimization results which don't include eyes, and also one which includes upward curved edges. We thus have to broaden our expectation of what this neuron activates on to be mostly about the fur texture. Checking this hypothesis against dataset examples shows that it is broadly correct. Note the spoon with the texture and colour similar enough to dog fur for the neuron to activate. So here's a figure with dataset examples including lots of different parts of dogs photographed from different angles, and in one case some kind of cooking implement. And then we have the optimization with diversity visualised where we see lots of quite different images that are all suggestive of different parts of an animal, but they all have that furry texture. The text goes on. The effect of diversity can be even more striking in higher-level neurons, where it can show us different types of objects that stimulate a neuron. For example, one neuron responds to different kinds of balls, even though they have a variety of appearances. So in this figure, the dataset examples include tennis balls, soccer balls, golf balls, baseballs, and a volleyball. The simple optimization just shows round, ball-looking objects. But the optimization with diversity reveals multiple types of balls, and these ones are recognizably golf balls, baseballs, soccer balls, and volleyballs, even though they're still in these psychedelic pseudo-tessellating visualizations. This simpler approach has a number of shortcomings. For one, the pressure to make examples different can cause unrelated artifacts, such as eyes, to appear. Additionally, the optimization may make examples be different in an unnatural way, for example, in the above example, one might want to see examples of soccer balls clearly separated from other types of balls, like golf or tennis balls. Dataset-based approaches, such as Wei et al., can split features apart more naturally. However, they may not be as helpful in understanding how the model will behave on different data. Diversity also starts to brush on a more fundamental issue. While the examples above represent a mostly coherent idea, 
there are also neurons that represent strange mixtures of ideas. Below, a neuron responds to two types of animal faces, and also to car bodies. So here in the dataset examples, we have different close-up pictures of cat faces, and also some close-up pictures of the bonnets of cars. So in the simple optimization, we have this weird psychedelic melange of suggestive car-like curves and bits of animal faces all mashed up together. And the optimization with diversity shows cats, foxes, but also cars. And there are four images here that are recognizably either a cat or a car or a fox, although again, they're these weird psychedelic pseudo-tessellated melanges. The text goes on. Examples like these suggest that neurons are not necessarily the right semantic units for understanding neural nets. Section heading. Interaction between neurons. If neurons are not the right way to understand neural nets, what is? In real life, combinations of neurons work together to represent images in neural networks. A helpful way to think about these combinations is geometrically. Let's define activation space to be all possible combinations of neuron activations. We can then think of individual neuron activations as basis vectors of this activation space. Conversely, a combination of neuron activations is then just a vector in this space. This framing unifies the concepts of neurons and combinations of neurons as vectors in activation space. It allows us to ask, should we expect the directions of the basis vectors to be any more interpretable than the directions of other vectors in this space? Zagetti et al. found that random directions seem just as meaningful as the directions of the basis vectors. More recently, Bao, Zhou et al. found the directions of the basis vectors to be interpretable more often than random directions. Our research is broadly consistent with both results. We find that random directions often seem interpretable, but at a lower rate than basis directions. And here we have four examples of pairs of images. In each case, it's a bunch of images from the dataset, and then a visualization labeled random direction. It's labeled dataset examples and optimized examples of random directions in activation space. The directions shown here were hand-picked for interpretability. And indeed, in each case, the visualizations show some kind of features. Some are suggestive of animal faces, and there are animal faces in the dataset images. Some are suggestive of textures that seem reminiscent of the dataset images. And one of them is reminiscent of the geometric shapes and vertices present in the dataset images. We can also define interesting directions in activation space by doing arithmetic on neurons. For example, if we add a black and white neuron to a mosaic neuron, we obtain a black and white version of the mosaic. This is reminiscent of semantic arithmetic of word embeddings, as seen in Word2Vec or generative models latent spaces. And here there's a figure captioned, by jointly optimizing two neurons, we can get a sense of how they interact. So here's a visualization of neuron 1. It's close to black and white. It has a little yellow tinge, but it's nearly black and white. Neuron 2 does look very much like a mosaic, close up of the mosaic wall of a building or something like that. And jointly optimized, it appears to be a version of that mosaic that is more or less black and white, in the same color scheme as neuron 1. These examples show us how neurons jointly represent images. To better understand how neurons interact, we can also interpolate between them. This is similar to interpolating in the latent space of generative models. And so here we have a sequence of images, with the first one labelled Layer 4A, Unit 476, and the last one Layer 4A, Unit 460. And in between those two images, we have a kind of a sliding scale. The first image is the image from before that closely resembles a mosaic, the last image is some kind of weird pseudo-tessellating pattern of animal eyes. And each image in between becomes gradually more like the animal eyes, in a fairly smooth-looking way, over the course of five images. The text goes on. This is only starting to scratch the surface of how neurons interact. 
The truth is that we have almost no clue how to select meaningful directions, or whether there even exist particularly meaningful directions. Independent of finding directions, there are also questions on how directions interact. For example, interpolation can show us how a small number of directions interact, but in reality there are hundreds of directions interacting. Section heading. The enemy of feature visualization. If you want to visualize features, you might just optimize an image to make neurons fire. Unfortunately, this doesn't really work. Instead, you end up with a kind of neural network optical illusion, an image full of noise and nonsensical high-frequency patterns that the network responds strongly to. So here's a figure captioned, even if you carefully tune learning rate, you'll get noise. Optimization results are enlarged to show detail and artifacts. Audio note, so this is actually an interactive example. In each case, we have snapshots at step 1, 32, 128, 256, and 2048. But unlike the examples we saw before, there's some kind of multicolored white noise that seems to creep in, especially as you increase the learning rate. And so when you select an image from the database and look at these different steps, if you carefully fine-tune the learning rate using this slider, you can start to see some features emerging, but it's hard to see through the noise. If you don't increase the learning rate enough... All of the squares look like step one, more or less. They're still just grey, white noise looking. If you turn the learning rate all the way down, the squares don't get far from looking like step one. They just keep looking like step one, with vague features starting to emerge, but mostly just looking grey. And if you turn it up all the way, this psychedelic multicoloured noise has just taken over the entire image. You can play with this yourself in the original post. The text goes on. These patterns seem to be the images kind of cheating, finding ways to activate neurons that don't occur in real life. If you optimize long enough, you'll tend to see some of what the neuron genuinely detects as well, but the image is dominated by these high-frequency patterns. These patterns seem to be closely related to the phenomenon of adversarial examples. We don't fully understand why these high-frequency patterns form, but an important part seems to be strided convolutions and pooling operations, which create high-frequency patterns in the gradient. And here's a diagram showing an input image, and then a series of images after it. So it's labeled input conv2, d0, conv2, d1, d2, etc. Then mixed 3a, mixed 3b, mixed 4a, mixed 4b, mixed 4c, mixed 4d, mixed 4e, and mixed 5a. So we're seeing a sequence of images. And there are layers between all of the images, some of which are light-coloured and some of which are red, and the red ones are labelled with a back arrow for back propagation. And the caption reads, Each strided convolution or pooling creates checkerboard patterns in the gradient magnitudes when we backprop through it. And indeed, we notice that as we go further through this sequence of images, the checkerboard pattern becomes more and more pronounced until eventually what began as a fairly detailed texture ends up as a highly pixelated-looking image. The text goes on. These high-frequency patterns show us that, while optimization-based visualization's freedom from constraints is appealing, it's a double-edged sword. Without any constraints on images, we end up with adversarial examples. These are certainly interesting, but if we want to understand how these models work in real life, we need to somehow move past them. Heading, the spectrum of regularization. Dealing with this high-frequency noise has been one of the primary challenges and overarching threads of feature visualization research. If you want to get useful visualizations, you need to impose a more natural structure using some kind of prior regularizer or constraint. In fact, if you look at most notable papers on feature visualization, one of their main points will usually be an approach to regularization. Researchers have tried a lot of different things, We can think of all of these approaches as living on a spectrum, based on how strongly they regularise the model. On one extreme, if we don't regularise at all, we end up with adversarial examples. On the other end, we search over examples in our dataset and run into all the limitations we discussed earlier. 
In the middle, we have three main families of regularization options. So here we have a table that shows the different approaches used in 10 different papers. I won't read out the authors or titles, but there's a short description for each of them of what the paper looks at. And this table visualizes which of those papers use an unregularized approach and which use frequency penalization, transformative robustness, or learned prior, and which have data set examples. And there are labels that suggest a spectrum between weak regularization, which avoids misleading correlations but is less connected to real use, and strong regularization, which gives more realistic examples at risk of misleading correlations. You can check out all of the details in the original post. Heading, three families of regularization. Let's consider these three intermediate categories of regularization in more depth. Those were frequency penalization, transformative robustness, and learned priors. Here's frequency penalization. Frequency penalization directly targets the high-frequency noise these methods suffer from. It may explicitly penalize variance between neighboring pixels, the total variation, or implicitly penalize high-frequency noise by blurring the image each optimization step. Unfortunately, these approaches also discourage legitimate high-frequency features like edges along with noise. This can be slightly improved by using a bilateral filter which preserves edges instead of blurring. Some work uses similar techniques to reduce high frequencies in the gradient before they accumulate in the visualization. These techniques are in some ways very similar to the above, and in some ways radically different. We'll examine them in the next section, preconditioning and parameterization. Audio note, there's an interactive example here, labelled frequency penalization directly targets high frequency noise, and it allows you to adjust three different sliders labelled L1, total variation, and blur. You can check it out in the original post. Transformation robustness tries to find examples that still activate the optimization target highly, even if we slightly transform them. Even a small amount seems to be very effective in the case of images, especially when combined with a more general regularizer for high frequencies. Concretely, this means that we stochastically jitter, rotate, or scale the image before applying the optimization step. Here's another interactive example, labeled Stochastically transforming the image before applying the optimization step suppresses noise. And so here we have sliders for jitter, rotation, and scale. You can interact with them in the original post. And finally, learned priors. Our previous regularizers use very simple heuristics to keep examples reasonable. A natural next step is to actually learn a model of the real data and try to enforce that. With a strong model, this becomes similar to searching over the dataset. This approach produces the most photorealistic visualizations, but it may be unclear what came from the model being visualized and what came from the prior. One approach is to learn a generator that maps points in a latent space to examples of your data, such as a GAN or VAE, and optimize within that latent space. An alternative approach is to learn a prior that gives you access to the gradient of probability. This allows you to jointly optimize for the prior along with your objective. When one optimizes for the prior and the probability of a class, one recovers a generative model of the data conditioned on that particular class. Finally, Wei et al. approximate a generative model prior at least for the colour distribution, by penalising distance between patches of the output and the nearest patches retrieved from a database of image patches collected from the training data. Section heading, preconditioning and parameterization. In the previous section, we saw a few methods that reduced high frequencies in the gradient rather than the visualisation itself. It's not clear this is really a regularizer. It resists high frequencies, but still allows them to form when the gradient consistently pushes for it, if it isn't a regularizer, what does transforming the gradient like this do? Transforming the gradient like this is actually quite a powerful tool. It's called preconditioning in optimization. You can think of it as doing steepest descent to optimize the same objective, but in another parameterization of the space or under a different notion of distance. 
This changes which direction of descent will be steepest, and how fast the optimization moves in each direction, but it does not change what the minimums are. If there are many local minima, it can stretch and shrink their basins of attraction, changing which ones the optimization process falls into. As a result, using the right preconditioner can make an optimization problem radically easier. How can we choose a preconditioner that will give us these benefits? A good first guess is one that makes your data decorrelated and whitened. In the case of images, this means doing gradient descent in the Fourier basis, with frequencies scaled so that they all have equal energy. Let's see how using different measures of distance changes the direction of steepest descent. The regular L-squared gradient can be quite different from the directions of steepest descent in the L to the power of infinity metric, or in the decorrelated space. So here we have an image that shows the image from the database, in this case it's a lion, the L-infinity metric, used in adversarial work that looks kind of like white noise, the L-squared metric, labelled regular gradient, that looks like white noise that becomes a little bit more colourful in the space that's occupied by the lion in the image, and the decorrelated space, which looks kind of like a nebula. It's a cloudy, gassy-looking image that has blurry shapes and fuzzy edges around the area that's occupied by the lion in the image. The text goes on. All of these directions are valid descent directions for the same objective, but we can see they're radically different. Notice that optimising in the decorrelated space reduces high frequencies, while using L to the power of infinity increases them. Using the decorrelated descent direction results in quite different visualisations. It's hard to do really fair comparisons because of hyperparameters, but the resulting visualisations seem a lot better and develop faster too. Here's another interactive example. You can modify the learning rate and you can also turn on or off decorrelated space and transformation robustness. It's captioned, Combining the preconditioning and transformation robustness improves quality even further. You can play with this example in the original post. The text goes on. Unless otherwise noted, the images in this article were optimising in the decorrelated space and a suite of transformation robustness techniques. Is the preconditioner merely accelerating descent, bringing us to the same place normal gradient descent would have brought us if we were patient enough? Or is it also regularizing, changing which local minima we get attracted to? It's hard to tell for sure. On the one hand, gradient descent seems to continue improving as you exponentially increase the number of optimization steps. It hasn't converged, it's just moving very slowly. On the other hand, if you turn off all other regularizers, the preconditioner seems to reduce high-frequency patterns. Section heading. Conclusion. Neural feature visualization has made great progress over the last few years. As a community, we've developed principled ways to create compelling visualizations. We've mapped out a number of important challenges and found ways of addressing them. In the quest to make neural networks interpretable, feature visualization stands out as one of the most promising and developed research directions. By itself, feature visualization will never give a completely satisfactory understanding. We see it as one of the most fundamental building blocks that, combined with additional tools, will empower humans to understand these systems. There remains still a lot of important work to be done in improving feature visualization. Some issues that stand out include understanding neuron interaction, finding which units are most meaningful for understanding neural net activations, and giving a holistic view of the facets of a feature. Audio note, there's a section of acknowledgements, as well as specific author contributions, links to some discussion and review, and the footnotes which were omitted from this recording for brevity. This was an audio version of Feature Visualization by Chris Ola et al., published on the 7th of November 2017. It's included as part of the core curriculum for the AGI Safety Fundamentals course. This reading was by Perrin Walker and produced by Type 3 Audio.